Welcome to the Educator State of Mind podcast, the best daily resource for educators to thrive at work and flourish in life. I'm your host, Jake Ruzzi. Every day, we'll explore tips, tricks, tools, practices, and stories to help you achieve and maintain a healthy life-work balance while working in education. Let's get to it. No one is telling you, hey, it's okay if you don't do this right away. Or, hey, it's okay if it's not your A-plus every single day. No one in education is going to tell you that. So you have to do it yourself. And like I said, it can be super uncomfy to sit with and feel with. But I've I felt a huge change in myself this year in terms of I'm not bringing my work home. I am intentional when I'm there. And that's what I can do every day. Today. I'm talking with Libby Gent, a bilingual speech pathologist working in a dual language elementary school. I'm super excited for you to hear this interview because we uncover a lot of misalignments in the value system of modern education. Oftentimes, we say we value something, but then we turn around and don't put our money where our mouth is, or we don't honor the people who have those skills and those things that we say we value. Of course, I think this comes from systemic issues that are bigger than just one person, one school, one district. But we do dive a little bit into what we as individuals can do to demand change. I think you're going to love this one. Here's Libby. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Um, You have a pretty important role in school, so I'm just going to let you kind of introduce yourself and what you do. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jake. Um, My name is Libby. I am a bilingual speech pathologist at an elementary school here in the Denver area. Um, It's a really high needs, like, you know, low income status school. We have um, most of our students come from families who have immigrated here or um, they're their grandparents immigrated here. So we have a lot of kids with um, like a Hispanic background. They come to us from Mexico, from Venezuela, from kind of all over Central America. And that's kind of why I wanted to work at a school like that, because I can speak Spanish and really connect with the families uh, and the students. Um, It's challenging, but it's incredibly rewarding. I can imagine that as a bilingual speech language pathologist, there's a lot of really interesting challenges that you run into that maybe other people in a similar role who are monolingual don't run into. Yeah, I I think so. Um, At least I think one of the biggest things is that the district I work for does not pay staff to be bilingual. So while I do every aspect of my job in two languages, I'm paid the same as a monolingual SLP, um, which for me is is frustrating. It's an ongoing Uh, kind of conversation through the union and with the district to pay our bilingual staff better. But then, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm bilingual, so I get asked to just have a conversation with a parent or translate for our administration or for like another teacher, whereas a monolingual peer would not be asked to do something like that. And normally I'm happy to, I will say, because I do love being bilingual, but there are times where it's like, okay, yes, but I have a lot of other things to do. And it's not always appreciated that I'm able to do that for other people. That experience in itself is not necessarily unique, unfortunately, for for education. You know, people with incredible skills and with the ability to go above and beyond some of their peers are just not valued in the way that I think they should be, especially for what you're saying. I mean, as someone who's monolingual, 
but I also work in a school where we have a lot of families where Spanish is their primary language and they would prefer uh, to have communications in Spanish. Like I'm having to rely on other people that aren't getting compensated for their ability to bridge that gap between me and a family or a student. I mean, I have one student that I can think of who he his primary language is Spanish. His English skills are pretty good, but if he's really trying to talk through something difficult or talk through like logistical things where the language is really, really important, Spanish is so much better for him. And so I have to rely on other people who aren't being compensated for their ability to bridge that gap. And it's extra work. Like you're saying, they're going above and beyond their job description and they're not being appreciated financially or really just recognized for that, unfortunately. And I do know, because I know a little bit about your school, is it a similar situation to what I've heard with uh, teacher positions who are bilingual that some of the materials that you have that are absolutely critical for your job aren't always available in Spanish? And are you having to translate those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of the biggest challenges in terms of any bilingual staff, uh, but especially for me right now, is finding materials that I think are appropriate and are going to be effective and also engaging because I work with kids from, you know, four years old to 11 years old. I have, pre I have preschoolers and I have sixth graders. So I have a really wide range of students so finding a book that would that could fit for either one of those ages or flashcards to work on articulation sounds or things like that in both languages is a huge challenge. Um, I've even started making my own this year more often than I did last year. Um, and I spend a lot of time searching sites and other places to find good bilingual materials. And then once when I don't, sometimes I just translate on the fly or try and make things up as I go. And that's not the same as it should be or could be if they were just translated already. Because um, I'm not a certified translator, I can kind of just make it up on the fly, but that's not the same as someone who spent the time to, you know, really translate it and make it the same in both languages. And there are translation services available, but they're so expensive and can be kind of time-consuming. And sometimes I know the translation services that I've tried to access too. Like if I want to send out a newsletter to our families and I want to make sure I include it in the languages that my families speak, like that can take so long that the information I have is no longer relevant. And then it's also a huge disservice to just use like AI tools or translation tools like Google Translate. I mean, more and more are coming out every day, but they're good, but they're not good enough to be confident that like what you're sending out to to a family is is going to make sense all the time. And as someone who can't check it myself, like I don't feel comfortable sending that out because I have a really, I, personally, I place a really high value on my ability to communicate with other people and it's just completely hindered. So what do yeah. you think we should be doing about it? <laughs> That's a good question. I think you brought up a lot of good points too. We have... Um you know, a, a whole trans, translation interpretation department within the district that you and I work in. And they're always so busy with translating documents for parents, special education documents that are full of, you know, jargon that no one outside of special education would understand. So then they take quite a long time to translate it and get it back to the team. And I think what you also said of the information might not even be relevant anymore. 
I've seen happening a lot recently where we have to send documents to translation that have evaluation results or testing results for a student. And then by the time we have the meeting and we have this translated document, there are new scores and there are new results for this student, which is good. But also we're talking about things that happened. And then in the meeting, we're relying on an interpreter or someone else to try and just piece it together. And I don't think that's fair for parents and guardians who are wanting to learn about their students' progress. Um, there just needs to be, I think, better incentive and motivation and compensation for people who do speak other languages to use their skills and have it be appreciated and celebrated because then more people will be available to help with that kind of work. Like I said, it's not something I'm compensated extra for in my district and I'm constantly kind of fighting for that. But yeah, I get tasked with doing things that my monolingual peers cannot do. And while my special education teammates are very appreciative and supportive, that's not the case for everyone I work with or throughout the, you know, the district or anything like that. Um, and I think it just needs to be celebrated if people are bilingual or polyglots that speak more than more than two languages. Because if you look at like Europe, right, they're, they're born learning many languages and that's the norm and it's expected of you. And here it's just like monolingual, monolingualism is the norm. Yeah. And I, and we give mixed messages to people. I mean, I remember being in school, like a foreign language was something that they pushed really hard to say, like, when you get to college, after you graduate high school, everyone's going to be looking for a foreign language on your transcripts. Yeah. They're going to be wanting... But then I got to college and no one cared. Yeah. Like it was it was not important. There was never any value placed on it after that. So it's this weird thing where we're telling people, we're kind of giving lip service to the fact that this is a big value and then we're not really doing anything with that. And I think that it just becomes more and more of a disservice every single day to our students who can really benefit from this. And I, I think we're, we're not really at a point right now where in our schools we have the ability to train people in a second language. And, and that doesn't just have to be Spanish. I mean, in, in our district, the communication that comes out is constantly um, with, with what they have time to put through translation services is in four, five, six, seven, eight languages sometimes. So there's a lot of opportunity for us as just as a nation and as a school, the field of education, to be pushing more foreign language and being able to include more and more students in a higher quality of education. And then on the flip side of that, making sure that we pay our people properly for the skills that they have. Right. And I think it's so interesting to like hear you say that because yes, it's not just Spanish, right? Like there are so many other languages, especially living in a big metropolitan area like Denver or Chicago or anywhere that has just a lot of diversity. We need to have people that can speak those languages and bridge the gap for so many different groups of people. And I, going back to the college thing, you know, people say like, you've got to have a foreign language. It's, it's, it's imperative. It'll help you get a job. It'll help you get into college. But then we tell students that and then their teachers are not bilingual or trilingual or anything like that. Like we have, my school is unique because there are positions that bilingualism is a requirement. If you're going to teach preschool through sixth grade dual language, you have to be bilingual. But then our administration is not. 
our district level people that make decisions are not. And that's really interesting to me of how we stress bilingualism. It's a job requirement for a lot of positions in our district. And then it's just not reflected from top down or appreciated top down. And so that what is that message we're sending to our students of like, yeah, you should be bilingual, but it's not important enough to get this high level district job or it, it might not help you get these jobs anyway. Yeah. And for me, I didn't encounter a Spanish class until I was in high school. And arguably by then it was too late for me. I, I tried my best, but I struggled hard in that class. And coming mm -hmm. out, I took two years of Spanish and I can, I can say that my pants are on fire in Spanish. That's about <laughs> as far as I got. That's the only thing that stuck. And I think that, you know, I am personally someone who struggles with learning languages and even learning English was was difficult for me. But and that's the only language I learned. But I think if if I had had the opportunity and just the exposure in a meaningful way earlier in my school career, you know, as a as a student, then perhaps some things would have changed. So I think if we can get to a point where we're able to offer the, the ability for students to learn a second language sooner than we are right now, we might be in a better space. But then again, how are we going to get there when we're not paying the people who can do this properly? Because I don't want to work in a job where I'm not compensated for the skills that I have. I mean, I commend you for doing it. Tons of people in education do it every single day, but we shouldn't settle for that. That's not what we should be settling for. And so how are we going to get to this if we're not placing these values right now, we're never going to be able to do this for the long term. Because I think this issue is only going to get worse. More and more people are going to not see the value in learning a second language, and we're going to be in a worse place than we are right now. Absolutely. And, you know, I think back to teachers that I had growing up, like K through 12, I started learning Spanish in fifth grade, and then I was able to take that through high school and into college. And granted, that was probably unique to the district I was in uh, growing up. And I don't know, like I'd be, I'm very curious now what and if my teachers were paid extra for being bilingual and teaching Spanish. Because I think like I, I consider myself bilingual proficient, like very, very bilingual, but I don't know if I could teach Spanish. And that's a super different skill set, I think. So were they paid extra? You know, I'm, I'm very curious how that functioned in my in my district or how it works with our district that we work in for teachers that teach another language. Because um, we need to incentivize them to want to work and teach Spanish and other languages. We need, like you were saying, we need to incentivize people to learn other languages, but the people teaching it have to be compensated and appreciated for it as well. And how do we change that? How do we bridge that gap? Yeah, it's, it's a big question. I feel like we could spend hours and hours trying to figure it out, but I think at its core, what this really is, is just valuing the people that we have and value, valuing the skill set that people bring into their work, which is an issue that's not new to education, unfortunately. Right. Yes, that's, that's so true. Yeah. And so with that, you know, you don't just work in one school. You also kind of travel around the district doing some extra services. Your caseload at one school might be enough as it is, but you're you're going above to to do some other stuff. What does that work look like for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I have an awesome opportunity 
where I get to go to different schools in the district and do communication evaluations for bilingual students. So if they're if they grew up speaking Spanish or it's part of their life, then I get to go in and take that into account and help evaluate them. So it's a holistic, equitable communication evaluation. And it's something I really enjoy about my job. And I love getting to meet other students, other families, other speech pathologists, and be able to help a student in that way so that they're not being qualified or diagnosed incorrectly. Um, because a huge myth in the field of education and in speech pathology is that being bilingual or more than bilingual would cause a language delay or a language disorder. And that's just not true. You know, as we've we've had people that know both languages in the field of speech pathology, the research shows that being bilingualism is a is a superpower. It's a huge strength and it does not affect, it does not cause a language disorder or language delay. So I'm able to go in and tell that to other special ed teams and speech pathologists and parents and say, no, your child's bilingualism is a strength that needs to be celebrated. And I can look at like, yes, they do have a language disorder or not. Um, that being said, I love that part of my job. But like you said, it's a lot. It can be a lot. And depending on the time of the year, um, like we see in special education, fall and spring can be super busy with new evaluations that come up, kids that get, you know, kind of identified as needing support. So I have a full caseload at my elementary school that I work at four days a week, uh, and it's, it grows every single day. And then, depending on time of the year, I can have as many as five evaluations at other schools that I'm trying to manage scheduling time when to be at the school, which I only have one day a week to do that, writing those reports, completing all the testing, sending it to translation on time, working with the other team and parents. Um, so it can kind of feel like two caseloads, like you kind of hinted at. And it's a huge balancing act that I don't think I did a super good job of doing last year, but it's getting better this year in terms of how I set my boundaries and um, organize my thoughts and the workload that I need to do. Because um, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but like I said, it's it's something I really enjoy, so it can be worth it. First off, thank you for the incredible work that you're doing with uh, the, these bilingual students and and being able to kind of break through some of the myths and some of the barriers that may lead them to get misdiagnosed or misserviced in our schools. I think it's super, super important, and we could certainly use more people like you. So thank you very much for that. On top of all of this that you're talking about, you know on the show, I really am interested in how to make education and our work sustainable and kind of build in systems of productivity and organizations to be able to continue to do this work that we love so much, even though it is a lot and it is hard. How are you doing it right now? Yeah. And I think it's such a good thing that you're you're trying to bring more attention to because I think every week my special ed teammates and I at my elementary school talk about how much we have to get done. And it's it just seems so insurmountable sometimes. Just yesterday, my fellow SLP that works with me two days a week and I realized that we have 10 initial evaluations coming up over the next month or so for kids that need communication services. And we don't have room on our schedule. We don't have time to do this testing. And, and 
all of my teammates, our learning specialists, our mental health worker, we're all so busy, but we all love it. Like you said, it's such important and rewarding work. Um, so to kind of answer your question, I think I've, I've tried really hard this year to set better boundaries in terms of I do not take work home and I tell myself it will get done when it gets done. Yes, there are deadlines in special education and I'm aware of those and those those get done on time. But I also have told myself and with the help of my mentor that I had last year that it doesn't always have to be an A plus your best work. It's not possible to do your A plus best work every single day without burning out. So she told me, you know, do a B level job. Sometimes B minus is fine. And I kind of use that as a mantra because with 40 plus kids on a caseload and outside school evaluations and testing and everything that we have to do at school, it just isn't possible. Right now, the way education is set up and the way my school is set up to do my 1000% best every single day. And I think because I'm very type A and which is also very common with speech pathologists, it's hard to sit with that and realize that it's not going to be my best job every day. But at least in terms of speech pathology, the time that I spend with my students, the relationships I build with them and with other people are more important. And they're always getting language when they're spending time with me or other adults that that kind of outweighs the feeling of, oh, I'm not doing my best. But at the same time, like, yes, there are deadlines to get done. So I rely heavily on my planner. I'm a religious planner, planner user, my Outlook calendar, my emails. And I try and be very transparent with my communication with other people. You know, I say, I'm not going to have this done today, but here's when I'll have it done. And we kind of set that precedent of patience and grace within my special education teammates and try and support each other where we can, because we all know, one, how much we love the work, and two, how much work we have to do. And that is a, unfortunately a systemic issue, but at least together as a, a team at my elementary school, we try and do not the best work that we can, but we do what we can every day, you know? Yeah, and I think that's super powerful for a lot of people listening that we don't necessarily get that messaging of what you're talking about, that it's okay to not show up on your A game every day. It's okay to not have everything you do be A+. For me, there are plenty of days when I come in and I'm at a solid D, and sometimes <laughs> yeah. Ds get degrees, depending on the school that you're in. Sometimes I give a C, sometimes... I'm killing it. I'm at an A++. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you remember in A Christmas Story when the teacher is like, A++++. Sometimes that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Not all the time, though. I couldn't possibly do that. So trying to figure out how do you keep that baseline as something that you can get everything you need to do done while still being able to take care of yourself is invaluable. And it's something that not a lot of people know how to do and not a lot of people are given permission to do either. I think that word that you just used, the permission to do that is so, so key because, you know, we work, you and I both work in very impacted populations, right? We have kids and students that really need a lot of support and we're, we're, we're in this job because we are empathetic and dedicated to helping these populations and we feel for 
what our kids are dealing with. Last year, my first year in the schools, I felt that deeply and I struggled a lot with boundaries and knowing that I am not able to do everything for these kids and to meet every need that they have and take care of myself at the same time because I know I wasn't taking good care of myself last year. I would just come home and sit. I was so tired. I w- I felt so heavy from everything. I didn't, you know, take care of myself after work. And I would I did a lot of work at home last year and I I didn't like that. And then you kind of have to give yourself the permission to set those boundaries because like you said no one is giving that to you from like the district or special education in general or or education as a whole umbrella. No one is telling you, hey, it's okay if you don't do this right away. Or hey, it's okay if it's not your A plus every single day. No one in education is going to tell you that. So you have to do it yourself. And like I said, it can be super uncomfy to sit with and feel with. But I've felt a huge change in myself this year in terms of I'm not bringing my work home. I am intentional when I'm there. And that's what I can do every day. So I'm curious, what because I am kind of a stationary nerd, really like, I have specific pens that I like to use, and I've come across a very specific notebook that I like. So what kind of planner are you using right now? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I love, I do love my flare pens, you know, the like, just the really nice colorful flare pens. That's how I organize everything in my planner. So any kind of, any different kinds of events have their own color. So if I have an IEP or an evaluation meeting, that's in red because that's very important. And then my to-dos are in another color and my evaluations are in another color. Um, I think my planner is honestly just from Target, but it's um, it's really big. It's the size of you know, like a big notebook. And it, so it has a lot of room on each page and it's a week at a time so I can see everything. Um, and it's easy to like flip through and see what's coming up. So the planner itself, I'm not as picky about, but I, I really like to have a system of how I fill it out and how I tell myself what to do and what's coming up. So that those colors of those flare pens and writing everything down is important. <laughs> And how do you, because you mentioned before using using Outlook and, you know, we're all using digital tools now too. So how do you manage kind of the, the connection and the bridge between your physical planner and the digital tools that to some degree you're expected to use? And it's not like you can send a paper invite to, to other people at other schools. Like you have to send it digitally. How do mm-hmm. you kind of make sure you, you're bridging the gap between your two workspaces essentially i just i think it'd be so funny if we were just like sending carrier pigeons to each other of like hey we have this (laughs) meeting coming up um because you're right we are we are expected to use digital tools right to communicate um so we have like a special ed team calendar that we put all of our um or like calendar in the outlook calendar and that's where we put all of our meetings that we have coming up for kids so I look at that and then I write it down in my planner and I cross check those things probably multiple times a week because things change for one reason or another in terms of meeting dates or times or who needs to be there. Um, so I had to I constantly cross check those. So sometimes my planner gets a little less pretty than I'd like where I have to cross something out in black ink and rewrite it. But um, I 
I think it's harder for me to look at an Outlook calendar and organize what I have to do because there's like my school calendar, our special ed calendar, there's the district SLP calendar I can look at. So there's, it's almost too busy. So I can pick and choose from the Outlook calendar and put it in my own planner. I like that method. And I think that, you know, sometimes I would have a question, maybe if you had asked me and explained this to me like a couple of years ago, I might be of the mindset that, well, that sounds like extra work to manage two calendars, essentially. Like it's already here in your digital calendar. Why would you then take the extra time when I already have a ton of stuff going on, I'm already behind, I'm feeling the pressure, but no, I'm going to take the extra time to now write this in a second notebook. What's your mindset around that? That's a good point. And I think, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way before, but now that you see it, I think, you know, growing up and doing school, at least until high school and college, I didn't really rely on any technology. You know, kids now, everything is on their Chromebooks and iPads, everything. And kids are struggling with handwriting because they just don't have to. But for, you know, you and I growing up, we didn't have that. So everything was handwritten. I have always been someone that, you know, hand wrote my notes um, in at least, yeah, until college for sure. And even in college, I would cross check between like my laptop type notes and a handwritten copy. But I think it's because I probably just learn better with writing things down and like that connection of learning it and writing it and reading it back. So I'm more used to relying on, I think, written information than a Google calendar or an Outlook calendar because it wasn't as common for, for me when I was growing up. And I just spoke about this on an episode of the podcast that like research has shown that if we engage in, with handwriting and take handwritten notes, like we're more, it, it gets cooked into our brain a little bit better yeah. in certain ways. And so when I think like from my perspective, just doing a ton of experiments with myself of you know, do I like digital tools? Do I like physical tools? Am I somewhere in between? Spoiler, I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> but I found that like the really, really important things that I need to really focus my attention on are the things that I want to take that extra time to write down physically. Because even though like it is extra time, it is extra work, but the payoff for that later in my own ability to keep myself organized and stay on track with what I need is invaluable. Yeah, I think I totally agree with that. I And I think it does come from taking notes and learning that way growing up. Um, but I even write myself like physically handwrite checklists of things to do, you know, with like for an, evalu an evaluation, for example, there are so many things that have to go into a special education evaluation. And for my parts, I write them down with like a checkbox because I need to see it. And then when I can check it off and physically do that, I know it's completed and I can move on to the next thing. And it's it's a motivating thing to have the checkbox. And then it's also satisfying when you get it done and you can be like, yep, cross that off. That's good to go. <laughs> I feel like we could keep nerding out about our stationary and our, our physical planning <laughs> methods for, for quite a while here. So maybe another time. But Anytime. as we're kind of wrapping up here, <laughs> we've kind of covered a lot today. So what I really want to think about, you know, as 
we're moving forward in education, trying to make things better than they are right now every single day. What's something that you would hope the future educators of tomorrow coming into the field of education as a speech-language pathologist, as a teacher, as a counselor, as whoever, on the topic of making sure we're getting fair and equitable compensation for everybody and their skill set, like what's what's one mindset that you've really like held true for yourself that you would hope that other people can get behind as well? So that's a tough question, Jake. Um, that's a good one. I think, and I think I'm still learning. So I think that's a big facet of it is like, you're always going to be learning and challenged, but valuing your skill set and knowledge is huge because at, at least for me and for you and other educators, we have a skill set that so many other people, one, cannot fathom doing and two, do not have, right? Like I have a master's in speech language pathology and that is a very small population within the larger population of our, our country and our world. And that is a skill set that I'm really happy to have as well as being trained and being bilingual in that same field. So knowing your own worth in that is very important. And I think also with education, building relationships with students and your coworkers and having someone that students, like being someone that students can trust and come to is far more important than paperwork deadlines and fall like, you know, certain rules and spe like specificities that we see within special education. I don't love the paperwork of part of my job, right? It's part of the job, but my students trusting me and enjoying spending time with me and vice versa is what I love most about my job. And that's why I keep coming back and I, why, why I will continue to come back to my job. So I think valuing yourself, setting boundaries <laughs> and recognizing your worth is very important. I think you put it, you put it perfectly. If you can't value your own skill set and value your take your your own worth seriously no one else is gonna right. and that's kind of the uphill battle we're fighting right now is our system's not set up to to value our abilities and our skills and everything we've learned and teachers educators who've been in this for 20 years have such a breadth of knowledge and experience that we should be celebrating we should be right. like jumping from the from the rooftops shouting it from the mountaintops of how incredible this person is, and we just don't get that, unfortunately. So, but we're getting there one yes. step at a time. Yes. If you we're can value progress. yourself, then force other people to value you as well. Yeah. And setting that kind of model, right? Of like, I'm not going to bring work home, and I don't think you should either. Or saying to other coworkers that I work with, I'm doing a B plus job today, maybe even a C, and that's okay. <laughs> Being that model. And, then the rest can take care of itself. We we don't have to settle for a system that doesn't value us. We can change that system. So Libby, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on the show. I think uh, you've had a lot of value to add for everybody listening, and we will be chatting soon. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. It was a pleasure. Okay. I don't know about you, but I am inspired. The biggest thing I'm taking away from this interview is 
that no one's going to give us permission to take better care of ourselves. We have to demand it. It's unfortunate that this is the way the system is kind of set up right now. But if we can work on demanding that our own sense of self-worth is taken seriously and taken into account in our jobs, in our education system, I believe that we can get to a place where we start to see some of the changes we're hoping for. Being paid and recognized for our skills, working to our values, not the demands of paperwork, getting unmanageable workloads under control. And it doesn't have to stop there. We can begin building the future of education right now. And so today I want to leave you with a quote from Gloria Steinem. Power can be taken, but not given. The process of the taking is empowerment in itself. I appreciate you listening in. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Educator State of Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback is extremely valuable because together we can make this show the best daily resource for educators. And did you know that you can get involved with the show? If you'd like to learn more about being a part of the podcast, head over to jakerusey.com forward slash podcast for more information. I accept submissions for episode ideas, sound clips to include in the show, and invitations for interviews. If you have something important to say, let's get it on the show. Thanks again and have a spectacular day.